This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at b h e r t e l at amosmedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World podcast. Welcome to the Coin World podcast. With your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Want to welcome everybody to the Coin World Podcast as we're set for another great episode for everyone. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. We just are so glad you're here every week with us. This gives us a chance to sort of flex our creative muscles, as it were, although I need to hit the gym a lot more, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Wouldn't you, Larry? Well, I mean, yeah, the he without sin cast the first stone there. I mean, I, I saw a thing the other day that said, uh, I've had a gym member sick for six months and nothing's happened. I need to go there today and find out what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, it's just the idea that we have something like that. And finding out what's going on, of course what we're here for because we try to keep an eye on what's going on in the numismatic news in the world. And our thanks to our friends at Amos Advantage because we're able to maintain our own collections. We may not, they may not sell exercise equipment, but they do sell the equipment for us to exercise our numismatic knowledge and our numismatic experiences with the different devices they have and the holders and the books and everything that's there. So much so that I would be doing a disservice if I tried to tell you everything that they have at Amos Advantage. You have to check it out for yourself. No doubt about that. Now, the idea is we're trying to educate, inform, and keep everybody up to date, but it's a fast-paced world out there. We spent a lot of time talking about it, and the world spent a lot of time talking about last week at $18.87 million, the lone legal, double eagle is what I like to call it, but uh, from 1933. Part of me thinks about this because people are still talking about it. We're still seeing it in the mainstream news. But I have to ask you as the world coin person who's been to shows at world around the world, do you think with the exception of the price of $18.87 million, the staggering number, that this coin had as much attention around the world as we think it had? It's hard to answer that. With certainty, given the fact that it's been, gosh, 14 months since I've traveled globally. And, you know, I travel, global travel is a thing that, you know, if you talk to 20-year-old me and said, hey, you're going to have traveled to this, this, and this and do all this, I wouldn't have believed it. And so I'm fortunate to have done the travel, most of it connected with work. But it's hard to get a sense of how you know, just are you overhearing people talking about it at Coinex, say in London or, or whatnot. But, you know, several years ago, the coin was taken on exhibit around Europe and the world. And uh, actually in my library, I have a book that the people 
I think it was a subsidiary of this company called Samler Husset, which is a, a an enormous player in the European market uh, and global market for coins, especially in Europe. And um, they bankrolled this exhibit. It was a way to both get attention on the hobby and thus sort of elevate the profile of collecting in, in some of these places where uh, the coin was exhibited. And, oh, yeah, by the way, you know, for all your collecting needs, tr- trust us sort of thing, uh, you know, it certainly was beneficial to them as well. They wouldn't have undertaken the expense and all that. But, you know, the coin is known globally. It's a, I don't want to call it a bellwether coin because it, it occupies literally a unique space in the hobby, both literally and figuratively in the sense that, you know, it's the only legal one to own as you, your quip deftly recognizes and references. It makes me wonder then, because, you know, seven point whatever million was the the benchmark, right? For so many years, that was the benchmark. Well, that's what, you know, the most expensive world coin or, you know, a US coin is certainly a world coin when you're sitting in London. And we don't know who bought this. So, you know, this very well could have been bought by uh, somebody in the Middle East or London or Hong Kong, any of the the financial centers. It, It could be staying in the U.S. We don't know. But when seven plus million is the benchmark for 19 years, and then all of a sudden you're two and a half times that number. I mean, we've seen some results that sort of bode well overall for the market for rare coins this year. I mean, the fact that earlier this year, Heritage sold out of the Paramount collection, the 1937 Edward VIII five-pound gold pattern coin for $2.28 million, the market for rare world coins, I think, is rising alongside the market for rare U.S. coins because it doesn't matter where it comes from. Rarity is rarity. And if you've got a handful of folks who are trying to own the biggest and the best, you know, the Edward VIII story, coin has such a great story because of the abdication and all that. It has the classic St. George slaying the dragon design. You've seen some similar rising results for the classic coin like Una and the Lion. Of course, there's so many more of those Una and the Lion coins out there, so it doesn't occupy that rarity space, but the beauty and the cachet of the coin, I wouldn't be surprised if you know we, we don't see a lot more coins, world coins specifically, breaking that million dollar barrier because all of a sudden the benchmark is $18.8 million, not seven and change. Yeah, million. yeah, quite a, quite a transition there. But you know, just a couple of weeks ago, you ask about the first coin to sell at auction for $100,000. And that was, you know, kind of magnanimous back then when that happened. But now we're seeing $100,000 coins become, I don't want to say somewhat common, but just the idea, for example, you may recall a few weeks ago, we talked about someone finding a 1792 uh, half deem in a junk box and they paid a little less than a dollar for it and found out it was the real deal. And it just recently went through a great collection sale and brought over $104,000 when it was all said and done. 93 was the hammer on it. So there's another coin that's over $100,000, but uh, there have been collections where there have been multiple coins sold recently 
at $100,000. Now, does this boost up the ones that are up there on the, uh, the, the stratosphere? Probably so. That Paramount collection that had the Edward VIII gold coin, I believe they said there were 132 lots out of that sale that sold for $100,000 or more. And, you know, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around this because, you know, that's like, oh, okay, that's, you know, multiple years salary <laughs> or whatever. But when that's the market for rarity, when you're talking about a lot of the folks that, that occupy that end of the market, that, that's pocket change, right? And so, you know, we've seen a rush to assets the last year and a half. The sports card market is crazy. We've seen crazy prices for even movie posters the last couple of years, a movie poster that's rare from a classic movie. It has great visuals. What a neat collectible item because it is this nexus of, of factors. It's not just, well, it's rare. Okay. There's only one known, but it's this obscure movie that nobody knows about hardly today because, you know, it was made back when the studios regularly destroyed the film strips, that doesn't occupy the same space as, say, a foreign language Gone with the Wind poster, and it's it's a classic movie. It's just such a part of pop culture. So, you know, coins don't occupy that space because of you're not going to buy the 1933 Double Eagle and hang it on the wall like a painting, like a like a movie poster. But gosh, it's a lot more portable. You don't have to, you know, you put it in some plastic, you put it in some sort of case and you can slip it in your pocket and walk around the streets of Manhattan uh, New York or Manhattan, Kansas, and nobody's going to know the difference that you have it with you. Oh, I would have steel-lined pockets, that's for sure. I wouldn't <laughs> want anything to develop on that. And, you know, in your movie poster, you bring a point to it, because uh, as Jeff Garrett pointed out in one of his recent articles for NGC, that uh, where the auction took place, Sotheby's has auctioned off art prints for as much as $300 million dollars, so 18.87 versus 300, well, you do the math. And I think about if, you know, if a thief breaks into your home and you've got a Gone with the Wind poster on the wall, there's a better than average chance that person may not even think that's valuable, may think you're just nostalgic. But if they spot a gold coin, unfortunately, they're going to do the wrong thing. So, I mean, you talk about the portability. I think the portability works in, on the account. You know, someday I really want to delve a little deeper into the subject. Today's not that day, but about protecting these assets that we spend so much of our money for and, and making sure that we uh, do the right thing. I've had seen so many sad stories about what happens after a collector passes and everybody who knew it was a collector thought that was open season. And that's just a horrifying story to me. And it, it rings well with me that I want to protect whatever I get. And that includes what my most recent acquisition. You're not going to believe this story because I know you told me recently that you gathered up a little treasure in change. You're not going to believe this story I'm about to tell you. So brace yourself, okay? Okay. All right. Last night, made a purchase at a chain uh, department store and in change got the amount of $14.41. Paid cash because you can do that every now and again. And in the cash in return, 41 cents often translates into one cent, one nickel, one dime, and one quarter. The quarter was a standard National Park quarter, so I already had it, no problem. 
The dime was a run-of-the-mill 21st century dime, and the cent, likewise, a shield cent from after our recent times. But it was that nickel. That nickel I looked at, it was a little dirtier than the rest of the coins, and I looked at it, and I looked at the date. I had to look really closely, but the date is very sharp, and it said 1943. I got a 78-year-old coin in change last night. I told the cashier, I said, this is a 78-year-old coin. Oh, really? Yeah, really. Do the math. You know, thankfully, she already made my change. But it's just the idea that, you know, they recently we talked about a book that says that there are still collectibles out there. And I'm fortunate enough. I haven't checked to see if it's 43 double I. But, you know, it's a 43 P. And it's in pretty decent shape, a little dirty, a little worn, clearly a circulated coin. But 24 hours ago, I didn't have it. And now I do. I mean, I've got, for some reason, I'm getting on a nickels kick here lately. I just picked up a 1920 Buffalo and I've got an 1869 Shield coming. So I just don't know what's going on with the nickels. But anytime you find something like this in change, I mean, and I'm still looking for a few of the state quarters, still looking for a few of the national park quarters to complete the collection. And, you know, I'm not soliciting here because I like the thrill of the chase. But, you know, the idea is there's value out there. And we were talking about $100,000 coins and $18 million coins. If you got it and you can pay it, God love you. But right now, the value to me of a five-cent piece, I don't really don't really care how much it sells for. I just care that I got this and it's cool and it's during World War II, and that you know that's the story in and of itself. You can go ahead and fantasize: was it in the pocket of a serviceman? That type of thing. Don't know, but the idea is: seventy-eight years from now, a coin showed up to me in change in circulation, and I just think that is beyond bad and you didn't even mention the magical word silver oh yeah silver absolutely i mean mean, that's that's like a dollar 50 in silver right now so well you know yeah before yesterday it was yeah yeah Yeah, i i haven't looked today but gosh i silver's mm, but that's all just a number on a screen. You precisely hit the nail on the head, the thrill of the hunt, the fun of just finding something of value, getting something out there. That's what I think every time we engage in this hobby, whether we're at that high end or whether it's at the end you and I are at, we get those little reminders of why we do it and sort of reinforcements of the thrill of the hunt and the, oh, I got a good deal and, you know, that sort of thing. That reinforces us and, you know, it keeps us involved and going till the next show, till the next, you know, auction lot listing or, or whatever. The finding something, the hunter-gatherer <laughs> mentality, if you will. Yeah, and the th- idea is that came out of a roll of, of nickels that had someone else who wasn't more geared toward the numismatic side been given that nickel and change, it would have ended up being spent somewhere or dropped and not worried about or whatever the case may be. And I, I, I feel very fortunate that it was gotten into my hands. It's, it's going to have a good life. But, uh, you know, the idea that this stuff happens and it comes down to finding things. And I know one of your responsibilities is to find out what happened right around this time of the year in the history of numismatics. So I had my find. What's your find for today? 
So we're going to jump back in time to June 24th. And there's a lot that actually happened this day, but I like the, um, I, and I'm just picking this now as I speak, uh, I like what happened in 1967 because that was when Congress restored the mint marks to coinage, which had last been used on 1964 coinage. And it sort of ties in nicely to your find because the, those wartime nickels was the first time the uh, payment mark appeared on a U.S. coin, right? So, I mean, that it's, eh, you know, it's, it's maybe it's a stretch. I think it works. But collectors were blamed for the coin shortage. It really was a perfect storm of strong economy and growing population. I mean, you think about it, the post-war era, 1946, that bred the baby boom. And so this boom in population meant all of a sudden we needed more coins because we had more people and there was more economic activity. You, you had the Interstate Highway Act in, in the 50s under Eisenhower and these major roads were being built to connect people across the country. I've thought about that recently. What would America look like without the interstate highway system? You know, we would not have dominated economically as we did 50s, 60s, 70s, because that was so important. I mean, it's important today. I mean, I was able to hop on the interstate and drive to Wisconsin for my niece's wedding and get there. I got back there in six hours or whatever, five hours. And you know, before that would have been a two-day trip on the old road. So, I mean, it's just, I just think about it, that how things can shape the country and, and all these things are connected. It's all connected. That boom in the economy was one thing that led to another, which led to the mint marks being pulled off. And then later they were restored on June 24th, 1967. So that's what I picked for this week in numismatic history. Well, that's an interesting choice, and I think it's a very fitting choice as well, because these mint marks serve to be a, a guide for a lot of the beginning collectors to understand, you know, because the biggest challenges I face with the, the National Park Quarters is the idea of my location geographically attracts a lot of P mint marks, not a lot of D mint marks. And I saw a, a Facebook thread, somebody else has that same issue. Uh, they're based in Mississippi or Alabama. And, you know, the idea is that you can look at a coin now and a little teeny tiny letter becomes one of the most important things for you. And as far as your collection, you're not even paying attention to see if it's a die clash or anything like that. You're just looking at the mint mark. So, yeah, the mint mark is uh, kind of critical for it. You know, when you get the S and back in 2019 and 2020 on the quarters, when you got the W, then it was just like, oh, wow, this is just so great to know. And it really lends the identity to it and the idea that it happened back in 1967 like that. Well, I don't want to go all the way back to 67, though, for uh, to, to take a look at Coin World. So uh, I'm thinking we're just going to 2003 would be a good place. Can you uh, help us out with what? I think like third week of June in 2003, anything of consequence going on? Well, that was uh, around the time I started working at CoinWorld. <laughs> I was an intern then. It's funny, the front page of the June 23rd, 2003 issue has a story that would become important that summer. And I don't know that I understood the weight of it then like I did 
even five years later, 10 years later, and now 17 years later, uh, 18 years later, actually, because the story, it wasn't headline news, but it turned out to be a, a very important event. And that was that there was a reunion set for four 1913 Liberty five cent coins, these fabled coins to be on view at ANA convention in Baltimore. Well, that show in Baltimore, July 30th through August 3rd that year, it was a nice birthday gift because my birthday is around then. That was my first ANA show. And I was just a dumb kid recent college graduate doing my 10 week internship at coin world. I had never been, I'd been to one other coin show, never been to an ANA really didn't have any institutional hobby support experience. That turned out to be the moment that all five 1913 nickels were brought together again because of the Walton nickel being confirmed by uh, experts, including you know several folks we've interviewed, Jeff Garrett and Mark Borkard, among them. There's a book, Million Dollar Nickels, about that, about the nickels and about the, the effort to get those reunited. It was just a landmark. You know, you look back at events of this current century, and that's one of those that stands out. The, the 33 double eagle sales stand out. There's not many events that really evoke that sort of like, you know, you look back and go, oh, in 1947, this happened in the hobby. There's not many of those events that happen that really define an epoch or a, uh, an era or a, you know, a, a moment in time. But that certainly was one of them. And so that was my first day and a because all five nickels came together. I thought that was pretty cool that this was the story that announced that, hey, we're bringing these four together. And there was at the, you know, around that time uh, or quickly thereafter, the the announcement that, hey, we're going to put out a bounty if somebody can find the the missing, so to speak, nickel, which turned out to be the whereabouts of which turned out to be basically known all along. And our editor at the time, Beth Deicher, was very instrumental in telling that story and cooperating with that family because they were North Carolinians as she was. It just takes me back to, you know, 18 years ago, how fun, how far <laughs> I've come in that time. So that's what jumped out at me. What, what did you find in the letters to uh, talk about? Well, there were quite a few letters that were directed about a May 26th article that appeared that was dealing with the uh, grading services. And some of those letters, not, not relevant anymore, but the idea was that in the, uh, in the latest issue, in the July issue, uh, Chris Bullfinch, our friend Chris Bullfinch, is going to have one of the Back to Basics articles talking about acquiring grading sets. So it's always uh, neat to tie something in from then to now. But there's a couple of letters here that I find interesting. One of them is called Educate Yourself. And the writer says, I've been collecting coins for over 35 years. I put it aside for quite some time while in the military and school. After getting back into the hobby, I had to decide if I wanted to buy professionally graded coins. There's that grading thing again. I concluded that it's really the same as before. I look at the coin I'm interested in, decide if it's worthy of its grade and price, and then I purchase it. If it is, it is. I concluded that if it were, if I were the type of person to buy a coin that's worth thousands more in the next grade, then I would have to study long and hard to decide whether whoever graded that coin 
did it to the expectations I might have. If you bring that same coin to 10 different dealers, you'll probably get five or more different opinions on its grade, but it's your opinion that counts in the end. If I'm buying a coin that's new to me, then I have to study the different grades of that particular coin before I even think about a purchase. We have to educate ourselves and not be angry at the grading services. And that's from New Hampshire resident Mark Alfaro. And that's uh, kind of a great idea when you stop and think about that, because that's what we've been saying all along. It's incumbent upon the person to get the knowledge of the grading. And you can see the grading 101 classes that are offered and plenty of opportunities for you to learn about the different coins. And as Chris pointed out, understanding the nuances of that particular coin series that you're talking about. One other letter that I thought was relevant, but it is may not be relevant today after we've had this hiatus from shows. It's called Be There, and it says, In the May 19th coin world, I read about the sparse Sunday attendance at the Central States Numismatic Society Convention in St. Louis. The article said maybe two-thirds of the dealers with bourse tables on Friday were gone on Sunday. That's to talk about an issue one more time. If people suspect and can't count on the dealers to remain at a coin show on a Sunday, people don't even think about attending the show on a Sunday either. Some coin shows' reputations for dealers' poor participation on a Sunday time after time guarantee sparse crowd attendance then and at all the future shows. I know that you might not get first or second day size crowds on the Sunday, but believe me, if you could count on big participation by dealers on a Sunday, those crowds would also be there. And that was from Curto Parker in South Bend, Indiana. And it reminded me so much about coming from the automotive world, same thing. You'd have your crowds on Friday and Saturday. On Sunday, it's kind of slow, and people would start packing up by noontime. And so those who were already there, it was a disservice to them because they were there maybe to see you too, but just didn't quite get there. But you were gone, and that was bad reputation for your company. And I think now that we're going to have the opportunity to have some big shows coming up, I know this didn't happen at Collectorama back in the uh, earlier one. It's probably not going to happen on the July show, not going to happen at Fun, not going to happen at World's Fair. But it's just uh, the idea is you're in it to win it. And you got to be there from the beginning to the end because you never know when that guy or that girl is going to come through there or that YN is going to come through there that uh, you can make a difference in what they do. So, I mean, the dealers have an obligation. It's you go till the finish. I mean, the game's not over until the final whistle blows. And that's uh, the same case here. And I, I see where Mr. O. Parker had a point. As long as I've been involved, paid attention to this stuff, I can remember shows did go through Sunday in many cases. Then the last day became Saturday. And it's, you know, whatever the last day is, there's always going to be a chunk of dealers who don't stay for it. I mean, that's just how it is. You know, it's unfortunate. It's whatever. A number of folks are just going to bug out because they've been there. They got there several days before the show. They're ready to go home, be with their family, whatever. You know, the reality is there's different levels of hobby, hobby participation. And, you know, when you're talking about a national show, you have a lot of those folks who are they come to a show and they're there for like a week and they're doing auctions and they're doing pre-show trading and all that. They view their time in a different way than the dealer who's selling five to $50 coins. Who's there every minute of the show. And yes, he, he or she still makes 
uh, a living and has fun doing it, whatever. It's just different business model, different, uh, different strokes for different folks. And, uh, you know, there has to be a way to accommodate everybody because you can't have the big show without the big money folks. And you can't really serve the new folks and the people, the would be big time collectors coming into it, uh, unless you have, you know, somebody catering to the more affordable end. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, there's a case to be made, for maybe eliminating Sundays for this reason. If you're a regional dealer and you are going to a show 150 miles from where you are and you have to be at the shop in the morning on Monday morning, you're really not going to look forward to the idea of packing up everything, getting back home, assuming no kinds of issues at all, and then being prepared to go back to work the next day. There, there certainly needs to be, I mean, this letter obviously was taken from the point of the person who attended the show that there needs to be some consideration given for those who are who are exhibiting. Yes, I understand it's a commitment that you have to do that, that you have to honor that commitment, but you should have the choice at your business to decide what to do that. And if you're willing to risk that Sunday show or that last day show, then I guess that's okay. But while you were uh, talking about that a little bit earlier, you used a word that is uh, regrettably going to be very pertinent right about now. You used the word unfortunate because we have during the course of our conversation here just received an email and it's unfortunate that our planned guest for today's show has sent an email to inform me that we will not be able to conduct our interview uh there is something has come up i totally get it life is what it is and we're not going to be able to conduct our scheduled interview for today so I'm going to put you on the spot. I okay. mean, here's the idea. Can I put you on the spot first and ask you the trivia question? Or Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead and ask me the trivia question. Then <laughs> you'll put me on the spot there, and then I'll return the favor. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, last week, you know, we talked about fractional currency because Rob Kravitz, the author of the, the book, you know, it got me thinking, okay, you know, we got to have something fractional currency related. There was an issue of fractional currency that led to a law change that is felt today. And so, you know, this is a little vague, but do you know about whom I'm talking? What is this? Uh, what happened? I think you're probably talking about the Spencer Clark situation because uh, Spencer Clark actually appeared on one of the fractional currency appearances, and he was still alive at the time. And I think that caused an uproar among people who didn't want to have, you know, live people on currency. And I think that actually was the impetus to put the rule in place where there couldn't be, you know, live people on currency. I mean, I think back in the coinage that, uh, the Special Olympics coin, and that was a fact that that individual was still living. But I think that's what you're talking about here is because that Spencer Clark put himself on the five-cent note that it caused a problem. You've got it. And and so the issue, uh, the 1866 
fractional currency, five-cent denomination, shows Spencer Clark. Who was he? Then he was the superintendent of the National Currency Bureau. Rob told us after the interview, Clark had no, uh, <laughs> he had no shame about belief in himself and uh, uh, his place in the world because, you know, he did a lot of stuff that was meant to boost his profile and serve his standing in the world. And uh, certainly that was one of them. That is why you don't see living people on money for the most part. You you highlighted a few exceptions. We've talked about some other exceptions before, but uh, that is correct. So you threw me a loop though, where you're going to talk to me about stuff. Well, here's the idea. The show must go on. We've got, I mean, we've got an obligation here to do the best we can here. I think back to the day when you and Chris brought me on as a guest and interviewed me. And all this time, we haven't really turned the tables like we should have to learn a little bit more about you. I mean, this is your 117th episode. And I still think that the uh, complexity of Jeff Stark has not been fully realized <laughs> by our listeners or perhaps by the world itself or by law, by law enforcement agencies across the country or whatever the case may be. Or the man himself. Maybe yeah. maybe I don't understand my complexity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if, if you would if you would indulge me, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions so that we can get a little better understanding about who you are. I know there are a lot of listeners <sighs> out there who uh, you know who communicate with you and they express how much you bring to the podcast. And certainly I am indebted to you for what you bring to the podcast and also to my knowledge and my ability to do the job that I have to do during the week. So, I mean, I just really want to know a little bit more about you. Your shoe size will not be asked, but okay. uh, just basically take us back. And some of these things may have actually been covered in the past, but again, for the new listener, who is Jeff Stark? How'd you get started in numismatics? So, you know, uh, Jeff Stark likes uh, hiking and baseball and country music and any uh, <laughs> uh, any single. Now, um, all of that is true, but that's not really germane to this discussion. The, the reality is, like so many folks, I got started because of my dad. And my dad was by no means a collector's collector. He was not a, you know, he was not somebody who participated in the hobby at a level that I think coin world tries to serve and, or, or even should try to serve. I mean, you know, it's, I think about who is the typical coin world reader, who is the typical, you know, the, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups for coins and, you know, the person that's buying there, I think is at a larger level, a more advanced level than even my, my dad was. It was a casual thing. It wasn't really a hobby so much as a thing that we occasionally did with some basic knowledge that, you know, differentiated us from most people. But, you know, I, I look back to the, you know, we've talked about 2003, my first a and I worked at Walgreens in high school and college after a year at uh, Sears Hardware. And certainly at Walgreens, I remember this um, oh, cute Amanda. She worked in the pharmacy and she called, oh, you're the coin guy. Jeff's the coin guy. Well, Jeff's the coin guy, you know, and 
and I go, well, sure, yeah, I'm I'm coin guy because I'm looking through the the um, cash register drawers and buying whatever I can find that's of interest, of value, whatever. But you know, I was plucked out of that situation as somebody with journalism training, always had wanted to write, always knew I wanted to go down that path. And I find this internship advertised and I go, well, it pays. I don't know what I'm doing after graduating. And I, I'm plopped into this world, literally and figuratively, coin world, uh, that, you know, in one area I was the expert and in another I am the idiot. You know, to go from expert to idiot, like, you know, fl flip of a switch, snap of a finger, it's something that everybody should experience uh, just like I would imagine, uh, you know, I, you know, if you go to an, uh, a country where you don't look like everybody else, all of a sudden you're the outsider. And that feeling of being an outsider hopefully teaches you compassion and and, you know, gentleness and an understanding that, you know, there are places where situations where I have not traversed before both, you know, again, physically and metaphysically, as it were, that first ANA, you know, I had a chance to be introduced to some folks that I'm still communicating with still, you know, I see at a show and I met there. They were folks who, you know, like I think of Wendell Woka. I had no idea who Wendell Woka was. I was sent to cover this YN trivia contest thing and he he was the MC and whatever and and I just walk I just walk up to him like he's a regular person because he is but then you know now I look back and I go oh my gosh he's written two books he's he's you know the coin world uh, paper money columnist he's done all this you know you don't understand the depth of uh, somebody's experience and place in the hobby when you're that outsider and sometimes I think that's really helpful because we can put blinders on Q David Bowers for all his accolades and, and his uh, stature in the hobby. He puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like every other person or whatever, you know? And, and so I, I think there's a, it's a long way of saying, I know that I've come a long way in, in these 18 years now, I could have never imagined taking the internship would lead to, a full-time gig to world travel to now I'm talking to however many people are listening to this every week. It's just, you never know that pivotal moment that, that little, a little step can be a big thing. And you see that in uh, looking backward. Okay. But now you had to make a commitment because you're in the cocoon of educational bliss, as they say. And you had to, you applied for the intern and you got the internship. But it wasn't a case of you just went across the block. You had to move. You had to physically uproot your life and go from Missouri to Ohio. What was that like? When I went there as the intern, my folks and I went up a couple weeks before to just get a sense of the town. I had no inkling where Sydney, Ohio was, is, had had no experience. Um, you know, you can look at a map and you go, oh, okay, it's out in the middle. I, you know, I joke with people even today. They say, well, where, where did you live in Ohio? I say, go to nowhere, find the middle. And that's where <laughs> it was. And that serves my desire to get people to laugh, but it also communicates 
a little bit about uh, the the place. You know, most people, if if they know Ohio, they know Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, maybe Dayton because of the Wright brothers. They don't know some of the smaller towns. Maybe Toledo is in there as a, as a town they'll know. Uh, and I loved Ohio. I mean, I, Ohio is a great state. It's it was more Midwestern than I thought. It, you know, I didn't think of it as Midwestern. I thought of that as East. And while it's toward the Eastern U.S., it certainly has such a Midwestern flair to it. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anybody there in Ohio, a small town. You, it was difficult for a long time and even was at the end, you know, still sort of being an outsider, not totally, you know, people would, I can remember, you know, going to the county fair and it's a guy with whom I later had a professional cooperative relationship with, but I went to the one of the um, political party tents, and they were giving out high school football schedules. And I say, this is great. This tells you who's who they're playing every week. But I don't see what time the games start. Oh, well, everybody knows that. Just show up around 530. I said, what time does the game start? Well, you know, get there. You want to get there around 530 to get a good seat. And we went around and around for a little bit. And finally, I just said, Chris, forget it, you know. But that speaks to that mentality of, you know, there was just a parochialism, a, um, you know, everybody knows everybody, you know, it was amazing. You go to Buffalo Wild Wings on the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, and it was like a high school reunion. There's a real value in people having a, a place to where they can come back to and have a sense of community, shared history. And, you know, everybody knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak. But I didn't have that. So I was an outsider for, for a long time. And I think I still, there, there was an aspect of that that affected me uh, before I left. Um, but, you know, certainly it was, it was easier to go around town and bump into people I knew because I, I got to know more people. But um, it, it was definitely difficult. But, you know, it wasn't, yeah. it, you know, there are many, many, many people doing far more difficult things and then have done far more difficult things. So, you know, it's just something you do and you grow and learn from. Now, the idea is that you're there in a, a stranger in a strange place, so to speak, but now you're finding yourself rubbing elbows with people that you only knew by bylines. Now they're real people, and they're the ones that are there to help you, teach you, mentor you, and correct you when needed. And uh, so what was it like to actually walk around and see the people who you've been reading for all these years? Well, like I say, they're all, they're all human. They're all, you know, <laughs> you know, we're all just uh, regular Joes in one sense, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't understand and appreciate the depth of service to the hobby that Beth Deicher had given and has given until coming to coin world. And, and certainly Paul jokes at that time had been to coin, been with Coin World about fifteen years, and so his service was was immense. And um, Michelle Orzano was, had been there for about that long, if not a little longer. You know, it was really only working side by side with them. Um, Bill Gibbs, who remains there, and of course Paul's there as well now. But you know, you you get the sense of how committed they are to the the hobby. And, or industry. Uh, sorry, Harlan, if you're listening, you know, you got a sense of their knowledge Their, I mean, sometimes even today, I don't 
I don't treat, I mean, this is coin world. It's, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, you know, it's, we're not the wall street journal or we're not a publication that has, you know, worldwide recognition among the larger population, but among a specific population, people know who coin world is. That is something that should be honored and respected. And, and sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that because, you know, you're, no, it's, it's just a job. It's just a, you know, it's a way to learn and, and spend time in, in this as a profession. It's easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. So no doubt, no doubt. Now, you know, you, by virtue of the way your career transitioned, you're now the coin world senior editor, but senior editor belies the fact that you are more or less the one. Well, I'm one of I'm one of two senior yes, editors. Yes, so. yes, yeah. Not but your the, title, not the senior editor, but a senior editor. Correct. And your title, but your job responsibilities focus primarily on world coins. But I think we in the podcast know that that's not the extent, that's not the length and breadth of your knowledge here, that you must have interests in other areas beside world coins. Now, not diminishing your world coin interest, but are you interested in some of the other aspects of this? Well, sure. I mean, uh, you know, being from St. Louis area, being, uh, you know, from Missouri proper, um, I do collect related tokens and medals to St. Louis and Missouri. Uh, being a baseball fan, I have many baseball-related pieces. Those are probably the main interest outside of uh, world stuff. Uh, and and for that matter, I mean, I would say Sydney, and, uh, Sydney, Ohio, tokens and medals in broader Ohio tokens and medals to a lesser degree constitute an area of my collection. I love and um, I just really admire or admire is the wrong word, but I, I really like the Statue of Liberty. Okay. I just, I appreciate it as a symbol, as an artistic uh, endeavor, a monument to uh, the American experience and expansion and the call to, you know, globally, we are an amalgam here in the U S uh, treading on native land, uh, a home for, folks who were displaced and dispossessed from, you know, Europe and, and uh, back to the founding, you know, even to today that brings together the best and, you know, sometimes the not so best, not so good aspects of the world. And, but, you know, I love that monument. I've been to it in New York City. I love seeing it when I fly into the New York International. So I have some Statue of Liberty related pieces as well. Uh, but my gosh, there's so many out there. I hardly have all of them. But that's another little sub area, if you will. And I'm trying, I'm organizing my stuff. I'm trying to go through. And just last week, I stopped at a shop on the way up for um, my niece's wedding. And I found uh, a couple St. Louis and Missouri related pieces. I found like three or four of them and I think I have one or two of them, but they were cheap enough. And it's like, okay, you know, uh, I've been giving some of those type things to some nieces and nephews uh, to try to get them interested. And uh, that's the perfect kind of thing that you can, uh, you know, say, Hey, look, you know, this is part of our regional history. And, uh, you know, the hobby doesn't have to be uh, eye popping rarities. It can be these, uh, neat little objects that um, communicate a different message and, and are from a, a different time. So, Yeah, but one of the things you didn't mention 
is that I know for a fact, in all the times that we've had here and the conversations we've had, I know for a fact you also are big in collecting numismatic literature. Oh, yes. Yes. How could I omit that? <laughs> I actually have two bookcases to put together maybe this weekend so I can accommodate just some of the many books I've bought in the last few months to add to it. And um, especially I knew that um, moving back to St. Louis, I would need to have a larger library. And in the last two years, I've probably doubled my library from what it was. You know, Rob came over, as as I said at the last episode, and he was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have this. I don't have this. I don't, you know, and and there's a lot of stuff that I have that probably is superfluous. You know, there's other things that, you know, they're generalized topics and, you know, I don't need six generalized books about such and such area, but they were cheap enough. They're whatever. Sometimes you pick them up and get inspiration for something. Uh, I probably won't get rid of those. I'm always looking to add to that because you're only as good as your knowledge base when you're a collector, when you're a writer, when you're a dealer. That's the only way I'm going to grow and learn is uh, recognizing that I don't know squat, but I need to talk to the people that do. And they can transmit some of that knowledge to me then and, you know, osmosis or shared energy or whatever. And hopefully, I mean, there was, there's a, a friend now in the local club. I told him when I was out of town, I said, I need you to bid on this in the auction for me. And I said, my cap is X price. And he was floored. He's like, are you sure? Did, was this a typo? Did you mean to say this number? And I said, yes, it's worth X times that. And he emailed me the next day and said, you know, I looked it up. You're right. <laughs> it's, it is worth, and I was like, I, that's just because you just, if you're open to the learning and understand that there's so much to learn, that's the first step to actually learning anything. And, you know, I, I still don't know anywhere near what I need to, but, uh, you know, I know at least in many cases, which book or which expert to consult. And, and that's, um, you know, the first part of the journey. And yeah, and it is a journey. In fact, we never will know everything we need to know. And that's all. There's always something new every day, as they say. But talking about your buying experiences, as you mentioned, that particular experience you had there, and also talking about acquiring some of the St. Louis material that you got on your recent trip, I got to find out from you because you've been doing this a little longer than I have. But this is for my benefit because I'm scared to death of this. Have you ever bought a counterfeit coin by mistake? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I bought a whizzed coin uh, and I posted photos of it on Facebook and and a dealer was like, well, that's nice, but it's totally whizzed. And I was like, oh, that's why it looks like it looks. You know, I bought it at a flea market. It was... Um, you know, the U.S. Philippines coin, which is another, you know, you talk about an area of collecting. I like U world coins struck by U.S. mints, but that's that's still in the world coin sector. So, you know, uh, but anyway, I lost two dollars on the coin. I went ahead and I think I paid twenty seven and, and I sold it for twenty five because I'm like, OK, you know, lesson learned. This is what a whiz coin looks like at the same flea market. I bought the um, New Zealand Lord of the Rings coin that I thought was like, wait a minute, I thought this was silver, but he's only wanting $5 for it. 
well, maybe they did a copper nickel version that I don't remember. That's funny because that coin series was launched at my first A&A, I believe, in <laughs> 2003. So it all ties, ties together. And that was where the, um, the memory, <laughs> memory did not serve me right. And so I bought the coin at the flea market for $5. I go home and I go, nope, it's not real. It's something that was bought apparently on Wish or Alibaba or one of these other sites peddling counterfeits. But you know what? If I bought this as a tribute from the eBay seller, it would have been $10. So I still made out. <laughs> I got the I got the fake at half the price of a normal fake. You know, there's a couple other fakes in there that, you know, I bought a lot of stuff. I didn't pay attention to each coin as I should have. And a couple fakes in there and I found them recently and it was like, okay, you know, I'm putting together an album of all because like there, there's a dealer, a guy in St. Uh, in Sydney that's in our coin club there that a couple of years ago, three, four years ago, I bought a bunch of coins from him because he was done. And I said, well, I mean, I'm always looking for deals and, you know, I just I'll sit on it, but whatever. And there's a bag of counterfeit coins in there that was not bought by mistake. That was totally intentional. And that was hey, these are important because they're educational tools. So one of my projects this summer is putting all those in safe lips and putting those all in binder pages and in a binder. And this will just be my, you know, dealers have their black box. That's going to be my black box of all the fakes that I own that are, you know, can be used as, uh, you know, educational tools. You know, so a couple ones that I've inadvertently bought will go in there along with the ones that I bought because, yes, these are valuable as tools to learn from. You know, a friend saw them and was like, oh, yeah, you need to treat those with care because you can't notice diagnostics. You can't notice uh, weights and other things if they're all just banging against each other and, and treated as junk, even though you think they're junk or whatever. It's a good lesson that treat your coins with care, even the ones that are fake, because they can instruct you and teach you. And there's always something to be learned. And I know it's something you don't like to do, but I'm going to put you on the spot once again, because you haven't been on the spot yet now, but you're on the spot again. You don't like to navel gaze, as you say. You don't like to talk about yourself. You don't like to uh, spend too much time on that. But you mentioned giving some product to some of your relatives. And you mentioned also the fact that the idea of how counterfeit coins can be spun to be a positive in this thing. With you and your position as senior editor of Coin World and with the knowledge that you've gained and the experiences that you've had, do you view yourself as a mentor? Um, you know, that's the, the quick and easy answer, you know, somebody wants to be humble and oh, no, 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 no. And, and I know that's wrong because I have tried to be to Chris and to you what I did not have. And, you know, I certainly uh, appreciate what Paul did for me uh, and others uh, in my journey early on because I really didn't know enough to, you know, I was, I was fighting above my weight, as they say in boxing, when I walked into coin world in the numismatic sense. Now, you know, journalism, whatever you can, you can take issue with, with that and writing all you want, but you know, just from a sheer hobby standpoint, I wasn't in over my head, but I was darn near close to it. And so we had a much bigger publication then we had 
different responsibilities. I won't say more, but different uh, expectations. And so I couldn't really beg of time for, for some folks um, beyond sometimes, you know, you there, but for the grace go I, I mean, you know, you, you have folks who help you out. And so I've tried to do that when I can recognizing that my experience can be educational, uh, both as what to do and what not to do. And that, you know, you bring a lot to me as far as a colleague, you know, with your broadcast experience, with your interview experience. So I learned from that as well. But yes, I've tried to at least serve when I can, understanding that I have limitations and, you know, you know, take everything like a margarita with a grain of salt. And there you have it. I mean, this is why the Jeff and Chris came up with the idea of a podcast way back when, long before I was a, a, an afterthought even, or a thought. And just the idea of this right now. And as I told Charles Morgan uh, from the Numismatic Literary Guild, that this is the heart and soul of this podcast. I'm just the mouth. So hopefully you've had this opportunity to learn a little bit more about what's behind the guy who makes this happen. And, and you're the mouth and I'm the behind? <laughs> no, you're the heart and soul. You're the internal workings here. So, But uh, thank you for uh, indulging me. Thank you for taking the time. Um, appreciate everybody being with us. Thanks to Amos Advantage for uh, supporting us once again. We'd love to hear your suggestions, your comments, and uh, especially now. But, uh, you know, just come on and uh, drop us a line here. We've had a few uh, folks contact us in the last week or so with some suggestions, and we're going to uh, pursue some of those for sure. But always good to hear from our, our listeners and our, uh, our supporters out there, and we do appreciate that support ongoing here. And uh, we'll get back on track with a regular show next week because Jeff is not interviewing me. So, so can um, can I ask you a trivia question that um, you know it relates to my hobby experience? Oh, that's right. We haven't done that, have we? No, no. So, okay. I bought an 1865 three cent nickel from my grandma, uh, my mother's mother, my maternal maternal grandmother. And I was 12 or 13 or something. And she said, I could go through this, these coins. I have it to this day. That's one of those things that, you know, I don't want to sell ever because of the family connection. And I, I know that there are collectors out there listening that we all have these items that, you know, Joe Blow would see that and go, oh, that's worth five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever the case may be. Another one of mine is the two cent coin that uh, I bought when I was in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade. And we were doing a class. We had to do class presentations on civil war. And so I brought the two cent coin in because, Hey, that's the first coin within God we trust, blah, blah, blah. And it was issued during the civil war. So I bought this copper three cent nickel for my grandma. What do you think she charged me for it? And I did have to pay for it. It wasn't free. It wasn't a gift, but it was one of those, Hey, you know, give me something for it. What What do you think, good old Grandma Martin charged me for that coin, which is now, and it was, you know, way. I, I will, you know, tip uh, it a little bit. You know, the, I, I did not pay anywhere near market rate for it, but um, there's 
you know, there's a reason I paid what I paid for it. And 1865, it was, you know, the highest mintage of that series. Uh, and today the red book, you know, I think it's a 20, 20 to $40 coin. It's not, you know, again, it's not something that I can retire on, but it has meaning that far surpasses that value. So you have until next week to think about that. And until next week, we're going to bid adieu and wish you happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B H E R T E L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast.